0: Hello, and welcome to the Urology COVID Lecture Series podcast brought to you by the UCSF Department of Urology. In today's episode, we have Dr. James Smith from the University of California, San Francisco, talking about barriers to accessing high-quality male reproductive care. Thank you so much to Dr. Hampson and the rest of the COVID lecture series for giving me this opportunity to speak today. My my name is Dr. James Smith. I am uh, director of male reproductive health at University of California, San Francisco. And for this session, we're going to talk about barriers to accessing high quality male reproductive health care. So disclosure, I am on the advisory board for fellow health. So infertility is defined uh, as a disease of the reproductive system. And it, it's it specifically, it's, it's defined as the failure to achieve a clinical pregnancy after 12 months or more of regular unprotected intercourse. Again, this is, it's a disease uh, defined by inability to conceive after 12 months of unprotected intercourse. So in the United States, one in eight couples struggle to conceive. Most of the time, though, this, this insurance coverage is really limited, and many times patients are paying out of their own pocket. When patients have to go to the most uh, advanced type of reproductive treatment called in vitro fertilization, uh, this is also a very expensive treatment. It costs eight to $15,000 every month that people are doing treatment. And couples uh, can often spend more than $20,000 out of their own pocket. And this, this is... Um, very difficult for many couples when the median United States income as of uh, 2019 was just under $70,000. However, infertility itself does not discriminate by socioeconomic status. And and several of these slides, I'd like to thank uh, my colleague, Dr. James Dupree from the University of Michigan for generously sharing his his slides. And in this slide, you can see that the, the prevalence of infertility is very similar across both racial ethnic groups as well as by income. However, um, when you look at infertility, the the darker blue versus um, actually utilizing infertility, the the families that have lower household income um, are much less likely to actually use any kind of infertility treatment. Similarly, when you look by race and ethnicity, Asian couples and, and white couples are much more likely to utilize fertility care. And when you look at insurance status, those with insurance status have, have insurance coverage for fertility are more likely to utilize care. In, in a survey that uh, we performed in a, in a diary uh, that, that men kept um, about their reproductive care, 64% um, of men spent more than 15 couples spent more than $15,000 out of their own pocket, 16% more, spent more than $50,000 out of their own pocket, and nearly half of couples had their treatment options limited by cost. And these these couples, college-educated, high-income couples, have more access. And we'll dive into more of these details a little bit later in our talk today. Male fertility is a huge deal for couples. Um, It's it's a huge psychological burden for couples, for for men. And it also may represent a serious condition that uh, reflects problems with someone's overall health. Uh, Problems like cancer, different genetic conditions, endocrine disorders, infection um, are associated with male factor fertility, infertility, and it can be a treatable condition in, in some cases. The standard evaluation, when you're thinking about high quality reproductive care starts with, uh, with evaluating and ultimately treating a man and requires a history, a physical exam, laboratory testing, and at a minimum, according to AUA guidelines, is a follicle stimulating hormone and an early morning testosterone. Getting two semen analyses, and for many, many couples, many men coming into my practice, I will also order a luteinizing hormone, prolactin, estradiol, and inhibitin B to round out evaluation of their um, male reproductive endocrine system. When sperm concentration is less than 5 million, then uh, also order a Y chromosome microdeletion and a karyotype. And for patients, when you're worried about cystic fibrosis like unilateral of the VAS, you would also get CFTR testing. And there is additional ancillary testing um, uh, as needed. Um, infertile males may have increased risk of testicular malignancy. Um, they, they may have an increased risk of death, and, and some of these men do have other comorbidities like diabetes, heart disease, um, uh, drug abuse, and other, other problems. When you're taking a, a history, a focused sexual history, a developmental history, surgical history, medical history, social history, family history, and as well as this is a, this is a couple um, issue. And so taking a focused female reproductive f- history as well as any evaluation she'd had from her uh, f- uh, fertility evaluation. From a physical exam standpoint, looking uh, overall, how, what is the state of health for a patient? Looking for gynecomastia, abdomen, make sure there are no uh, surgical scars or abdominal masses. And from a genital urinary standpoint, looking at the size of the meatus, position of the meatus, um, of scrotum, the size, consistency of the testicles, the presence or absence of the vas deferens, any issues with the, the epididymis, um, feeling for a varicocele in the pampiniform plexus, and and uh, when appropriate, get a digital rectal exam, feeling for uh, any any abnormalities in seminal vesicles and a neurological exam um, in terms of evaluating any any central lesions and this physical exam can point you to specific diagnoses from a modal cilia syndrome uh, for for certain uh, uh, issues you'd no- notice with sinus problems uh, female body habitus might suggest karyotype abnormalities prosthetic tenderness infection and and overall um, the range of diagnoses that that result from this evaluation, from varicocele obstructed problems, prior history of uh, uh, drug exposures or radiation exposures, testis testis failure. Generally, we classify. Testicular uh, fertility abnormalities is either pre-testicular causes, problems um, in, the, in the brain, testicular causes, problems of sperm production issues in the testicle, or post-testicular problems. And these are problems of uh, sperm being made appropriately, but not being able to come uh, get out of the, the testicle. So in grounding this, this discussion, uh, I have a series of cases that we'll, we'll talk about as, as this lecture goes on. And this first patient is a 34-year-old patient who stopped contraception a bit over a year ago, meets diagnosis for infertility. And uh, the partner was 34 years old, had no prior pregnancies and was healthy takes Propecia, which is a potential risk factor, um, and on a physical exam, he is well, no gynecomastia, normal body habitus, a circumcised phallus, and a normal meatus. And you note on his testicular exam, there's a normal right-sided uh, testicular exam, but his left side is smaller and slightly smaller than normal at 16 milliliters. Otherwise, uh, normal epididymis, normal vas, and a uh, visually obvious grade three varicocele on the, on the left side. And so the, both the varicocele and the Propecia are potential targets for him. And when you think about this, of the evaluation for this patient, you're thinking about evaluating potential problems and evaluating testosterone, luteinizing hormone, follicle stimulating hormone, and some of the feedback loop hormones like inhibit B, estradiol, and prolactin that can suppress GnRH as well as uh, the, the Uh, pituitary gland hormones, the gonadotropins. On his evaluation, you find that his follicle stimulating hormone and testosterone are both normal. His semen analysis, however, is consistent with a uh, low total motor count at 10 million and a repeat semen analysis at 12 million. And so the options that we have to treat this this patient are we could stop his finasteride and wait three months. We could fix his varicocele and wait three months. We can consider diet, lifestyle, antioxidants um, and wait three months. We can consider intrauterine insemination now. We can consider in vitro fertilization now. So in fixing a varicocele is a very common problem in male reproductive health. It's, uh, it's the prevalence is high in the population, even higher in a reproductive health clinic. And it, the, this type of patient- uh, Reasons for a varic- uh, this, this patient um, could also consider doing an intrauterine insemination. And and intruder insemination is is something um, uh, that generally is less costly than in vitro fertilization, but still can cost $1,500 or or more each month of doing doing IUI. In vitro fertilization is a much more effective technique, but is also, uh, as I alluded to earlier, is, is much more expensive, requires many fewer sperm to be successful. So what are the types of barriers that, that exist for couples considering um, this sort of diagnosis and this sort of treatment? And So there are, there are a number. Education about just being aware of the different options that are available, having the income to be able to afford treatments, having insurance coverage, um, having specific knowledge about fertility. Um, and reproductive health in general may uh, present a barrier. The financial strain that paying for these services can be a big barrier. From a geographical standpoint, there there often are few specialists, particularly as in some states and in more rural parts of the country, uh, there may not be reproductive urologists who are helpful. Access to high quality semen analysis can also be a problem. Even in urban settings, there there can be a a big shortage of high quality uh, semen analysis testing. For for some some couples, taking time off work to pursue reproductive care can be a really big deal. And then the obvious, the, the cost of treatments can be a major impediment for cancer patients. The cost of fertility preservation can be a big deal. And so thinking about fertility preservation, how? what about accessing the needed treatment for patients who want to preserve sperm and get, get care within the context of their, their malignancy? Banking sperm has become much bigger deal over the last few decades. And essentially, you can see from this figure on the, the right side of the slide, uh, survival from many malignancies is very high and the probability of, of living and having a long life after, after a cure of your cancer is uh, something that's really important. And thinking about reproductive health is one of the most common, one of the most important for, for many men. Fertility preservation is should be straightforward. As you'll see in the next few slides, there are some, there are some challenges. So, again, grounding our discussion, a patient, this is one 19-year-old patient who does, had desire for fertility treatment, uh, was about to receive a very toxic treatment for fertility, uh, uh, the via cop treatment, and you bank a semen sample, and his total motile count was 100 million moving sperm in that semen sample. Uh, obtain uh, basic laboratory testing, and you notice at that, that time that his testosterone is normal, his, and his gonadotropins are also normal. In general, in terms of providing good fertility preservation care, providers should be uh, capable of discussing risk of infertility with cancer patients or the parents of uh, adolescents and discuss fertility options. Refer all potential, the the oncology providers should refer to reproductive urologists or other specialists who can discuss their options. These options are not uniformly available, and as you'll see as we talk through the logistics, it can be really difficult. So at UCSF, we have access to many resources, but even with that, it's really a cumbersome process. So for inpatients, requires calling a urology consult, ordering required FDA labs, you can see in this slide. We utilize a nurse practitioner to help verify getting these labs done, having a, uh, obtaining a consent, and, and actually scheduling the cryopreservation, producing at least one sample, having a courier go to the hospital, or having family member take the the sample to the lab. Once the sample is at the lab, the report can reside in a separate standalone database, um, and then we subsequently organize the visit with me to to talk about and strategize about how many samples to bank and and what what the implications are. As an outpatient, it's similar. A referral comes through the urology department. We uh, utilize our nurse practitioner to help with labs, consent forms, produce a sample at the reproductive health, again, as an outpatient, and then a a telemedicine visit uh, just to strategize about about options. Um, Both of these can be really difficult, particularly in the context of your cancer diagnosis, and these represent a significant barrier to, to good care. When strategizing with with patients, thinking about how many samples should you bank really requires thinking about what you're gonna use the sample for down the road. And if you have at least 5 million moving sperm and a thawed sample, you can consider doing IUI. And five. if you have fewer than 5 million sperm, then thinking about in vitro fertilization. So for a man like this with 100 million moving sperm, generally I might suggest aliquoting that into four vials that could be utilized for, each one could be utilized for an IUI cycle um, afterward. What about our transgender patients? So in fertility preservation, how do we, we allow uh, these, these patients to access care? So in terms of the the logistics, they are similar, and essentially this is done as an outpatient and requires the same steps that we we discussed uh, a few minutes ago. And and so a a common patient would come into my clinic would be a 20-year-old transgender female patient she desires fertility preservation prior to initiation of gender-affirming hormones. And she wants the chance to have her own genetic children in the future. She has no prior children. She has Blue Cross insurance that, with no known coverage for fertility preservation. And she also produces a semen sample with a total motor count of 100 million. Now, second patient, a little bit older patient, she presents to your clinic with a desire for orchiectomy. She's healthy, has two letters from clinician social worker who say, okay, she's, she's ready to move on for, the, for um, an orchiectomy. She's been on sperm lactone and estradiol for the past five years. And she also wants the chance to have her own genetic children. She never banked sperm before. And she has Medicaid insurance. Her semen sample has 100,000 sperm, a few of which are modal, and you discuss the possibility of potentially using testicular sperm at at um, at the time of orchiectomy versus other options. Now, important part of the consultation here is is and is discussing with with patients that you need a sperm, you need egg, and you need a uterus, and it, it can be complicated in terms of the potential uh, uses of this this sperm. So, for patients who are single, uh, they'll require. A donor egg and a gestational carrier. For uh, uh, partners who, for patients with a partner that is a cisgender female, the potentially timing sex with ovulation, intruder insemination, in vitro fertilization, or IVF are possible. For patients whose partner is a transgender male, um, uh, you also have the, the same four options. For a cisgender male patient, really have to inform patients that they would need to do in vitro fertilization. They need to have an egg donor and also a surrogate. And again, for a patient whose partner is transgender, female, that is the same uh, option would be required. And this is uh, important as far as the counseling is concerned because for patients needing to do in vitro fertilization, you you may not need to bank as, as many semen samples. We found um, in a study from now a couple of years ago that for patients who were on spironolactrone and estradiol, it is still possible to find sperm and the motility is often lower. The total motile count in samples were often much lower, the number of vials one could freeze was, was lower, but it is still possible to, to freeze sperm and that is an additional option you could, you could counsel your patients. And in thinking about the same slide for our first patient again, on one ejaculate it could probably be frozen into four vials. And you discuss how many times would you want to try IUI, um, and what what would be appropriate for their their family plans. For the second patient who had 100,000 sperm, I might also consider something like four vials to aliquot their sample. Um, but we'd be thinking about in vitro fertilization. So this would be at least four months of fresh IVF cycles and probably other frozen cycles from that. So how many how many samples would the, the patient want to bank? So what are some of the barriers to fertility preservation? Well, as, as I've said, the logistics is really difficult in many patients, the timing is tricky. Sometimes the banking itself is, is quite expensive and runs each sample in the hundreds of dollars and patients can pay sometimes thousands or multiple thousands of dollars based on their location. Um, for some patients, the infrastructure for preserving is just not available. Getting these infectious disease labs can be quite difficult. Consulting with a doctor is not always readily available. For some cancer patients, some people just feel that they wouldn't need it. Um, if the risk of the from the chemotherapy is perceived to be low, they may decide not to bank sperm. And for some oncologists or surgeons, just may not may not know about it. Um, that knowledge gap is getting smaller over time, but that still exists. Many patients do experience significant regret if, if they don't bank. And so offering them this and, and developing systems is, is important. Well, so let's dive into the details a little bit about some of these, some of these barriers. So what about geography? So uh, a few years ago, uh, we wrote a paper where we analyzed the prevalence of male fertility um, infertility across the country, and I show this slide as a way of showing these white spots through the country throughout the country are essentially places where where there is no um, advanced reproductive technology available. And you can see that all throughout the country, there are wide swaths of the United States that that lack access to reproductive, advanced reproductive health uh, therapy. And if you look specifically at male fertility specialists, again, it's a similar pattern. There are wide, large parts of the country really just lack direct physical access to uh, male reproductive specialists and to some some extent this corresponds with mandated insurance coverage but but not always and most most specials are found in urban settings that goes along with uh, with IVF centers and they they often they often go hand in hand so how far will men travel to see their reproductive urologist in unpublished data um, the, the Andrology Research Consortium and Dr. Simplasky and colleagues demonstrated in men and 3,000 men from 16 clinics that the average the median driving distance was about 18 miles. The median driving time was about 32 miles, and uh, patients at the longer uh, driving distance driving time was about uh, 50 minutes. Older men were less likely to drive long distance. Black and Asian patients were less likely to drive long distance. And so while it shows that while men in general are willing to drive uh, fairly long uh, distances, there are disparities for men of color and for older men that have not not been investigated well. Well, in thinking about that time, it's it's important to, to note that the amount of time that it takes for actual treatment of fertility care is a lot. And so the overall time cost in couples who are pursuing cycle-based, so either IUI or IVF, the overall time was about 750 hours um, at maximum. The median time was about 104. For couples who weren't doing um, cycle-based treatment, who are just coming in for visits with, with doctors, um, still could be as much as 477 minutes uh, um, and for the number of this translates to the number of work days uh, when you divide that by eight up to, to 90 uh, work days, it's, it's a lot. Um, and the, the median was about 13 work days. And this is for, for couples who are doing in vitro fertilization or, or IUI. So it's it's pretty extensive. When you look at the, the time costs by socioeconomic status, um, Couples who had a college degree um, spent more time, uh, they were able to access these treatments. And you could see the rising amount of time by fertility treatment, no cycle-based treatments, all the way up to in vitro fertilization. Um, So what about characteristics like education, income, and race on access to care, as well as outcomes of, of care? So in a study that uh, was done jointly between uh, San Francisco hospitals, as well as hospitals in Houston, um, a a fertility uh, knowledge quiz was administered to couples at low resource settings in San Francisco at the San Francisco General County Hospital, and then the UCSF hospitals at the high resource settings. And then analogous facilities in Houston demonstrated um, not surprisingly that, that that couples in the lower resource setting were significantly less likely to know about uh, reproductive health um, care and about the, the options that were potentially available to them. Um, and looking at the out-of-pocket costs, the, 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 the money that people are actually spending is about $1,000 for fertility medications only, including medications plus the treatments, about $2,600 for couples doing IUI and about $20,000 out of pocket for couples doing IVF. Patients who are college educated and high income, much more likely to access service and outcomes, as you'll see momentarily, were better for college educated, higher income couples. So we sought to determine the effect of these factors um, on utilization of care and and outcomes. And in a a prospective cohort in the San Francisco Bay Area and couples uh, from eight community and academic Uh, reproductive clinics. These these couples were followed for 18 months. Interviews were conducted both at baseline, four months, 10 months, and 18 months. And fertility outcomes, key demographic and medical data were determined both through these interviews, um, face-to-face, and then also telephone interviews, and then medical record abstraction at the end of the the study. And then the utilization of medications, diagnostic testing, therapeutic intervention were, were all determined. Standard charges were assigned to each item to develop um, estimated costs, and then uh, linear regression was utilized to model these relationships between race, socioeconomic status, and costs of care. Logistic regression was utilized to look at fertility outcomes, specifically pregnancy. So there were 375 couples who were followed for 18 months. The mean age of women in the cohort was about 35. The vast majority were married, majority as well were Caucasian, 80% had a college degree. And in this couple, uh, about, uh, excuse me, in this population, about 28% had had no treatment, Uh, 2% only chose uh, medications only, 25% IUI, 19% did some intrauterine insemination followed by IVF, and 26% only did in vitro fertilization. Overall, uh, 50% spent less than 10,000, 18% between 10 and 20,000, 14% between 20 and 30,000 and 16% more than $30,000. And uh, just looking broadly, um, the people who chose any fertility treatments were spending about $20,000 of their own pocket compared to $800 uh, if they were not choosing uh, fertility treatment. And looking more specifically at white race, um White couples spent more, more money, about uh, $3,000 more. College-educated couples spent about $6,000 more. And as income rose, specifically uh, more than $100,000, that the amount of money that couples were spending went up substantially also. And looking at pregnancy data, uh, you can see that the couples who were choosing uh, to do fertility treatments were much more likely to conceive, and not surprisingly, fertility treatments work. So, what about um, uh, how do the how does race, education, income play a role here? So, the the odds of achieving a pregnancy were higher for white couples, though it didn't quite meet statistical significance. College educated couples um, were interestingly enough um, fairly similar in terms of their their outcomes. And uh, income also was associated with um, uh, likelihood of, of pregnancy. And in looking at all these relationships in a multivariable model, um, you, can, you can see again that even adjusting for many other factors that uh, college-age couples, excuse me, college-educated couples, were more likely to to spend more more money. And couples who had higher household incomes were also more likely to spend more money. And in looking at outcomes, um, couples who were college educated had a a higher odds of achieving a pregnancy, though though, again, this didn't quite achieve statistical significance. And couples with a household income, um, more than $200,000 were more likely to achieve a pregnancy, even after holding all other factors constant in in the model so again uh even in uh, looking at these these models uh or in looking at these models um uh i think this these slides get a little bit a little bit busy here essentially couples who utilized more more treatment were getting pregnant more more often um So in general, college educated and higher income couples um, utilized $6,000 more resources than non-college educated uh, 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 graduates uh, with lower incomes. Couples who chose to undergo fertility treatments were almost four times more likely to achieve a pregnancy or have a child. And the highest income couples were more than two times likely to have a child or a pregnancy. So couples with a college degree, higher household income and in a white race utilized more infertility services, had better fertility outcomes. And this was a result of more aggressive treatment pathways and, and a higher number of treatment cycles. However, large segments of the United States population, really they're unable to afford the highest and best levels of infertility care. in talking to couples, um, 47% of couples reported that that paying for fertility care caused significant financial strain, that costs limited their treatment choices, costs limited the number of treatment cycles, and about 20% stopped treatment um, due to the cost. Couples, high percent of of couples were utilizing their own savings, 12% taking out loans, a small number taking out a second mortgage, um, one in five selling stocks, um, and going into debt and a small number actually utilizing child's college fund. So again, it's a, it's a big deal. Um, and sh- and looking at the insurance coverage, I'd like to thank again, my colleague, Dr. Dupree from Michigan and um, looking at, at uh, utilizing his, his slides. So again, many couples were postponing uh, seeking care due to the, the cost, particularly when couples were uninsured. When patients had uh, private insurance, only 6% were delaying care. Uh, patients who went without their needed care due to the cost they their uninsured, one in four did that, it was only about 4% for patients who had employer-sponsored insurance. Lack of insurance also drives doing multiple IVF embryo transfers, so couples will often try to push toward transferring multiple embryos instead of just a single embryo transfer because they'd rather just get get everything done at one time. Um, Because from a patient's perspective, they have to pay for that IVF in that one month um, and their insurance will kick in and cover the pregnancy, even if it potentially is a high risk uh, pregnancy for multiple gestation births. So insurance, when when uh, takes out some of that financial anxiety can encourage better care which is uh, single embryo transfer and less likelihood of of twins and the potential twins or triplets and the potential health risks to uh, mothers and and children in terms of uh, the types of possibilities from a private and public standpoint private insurers can uh, offer either sponsored or subsidized um, uh, policies. They can be fully insured where some state mandates uh, apply. It can be self-insured employers which are exempt from the state mandates. And there can be some uh, private exchanges that are purchased by individuals and small groups. From a public standpoint, these Government-provided insurance include Medicare, Medicaid, TRICARE, some of the the veterans, um, the CHIP programs, and the fully insured options are really a patchwork of state-level infertility mandates um, in terms of California, Montana, Ohio, um, New York, West Virginia. There is some coverage, but the the, the mandate is, while it mandates some infertility coverage, the, the amount of care is, is widely divergent um, in, um, in each, each state. So m- few insurance plans cover infertility care, and this is a survey of 2000, in 2006 of employers who had at least 200 employees. Um, of those plans, 54% covered an infertility evaluation, 37% covered drug therapy, and 19% covered IVF care. In looking at the utilization of IVF, um, this is uh, from Dr. Dupree's work uh, published in JAMA in 2019, showed that for the once the implementation of an in vitro fertilization policy went into place, there was a very large and, and significant increase in utilization of care. And when in looking at employee salary, uh, patients who had um, low, much less likely to utilize in vitro fertilization, and uh, goes up with, with salary over time. So how about the Affordable Care Act? And essentially it was it does not make a statement one way or the other about infertility care. In terms of Medicare, Part A um, uh, stated that effective January 15, 1980, that the reasonable and necessary services associated with treatment for infertility are covered by Medicare. Part B, again, reasonable and necessary services associated with treatment for infertility are covered under Medicare. From Medicaid, um, the, the numbers are really not, not as uh, promising. Basically, IUI and IVF, not covered. Medications uh, for women, not covered very well, nor diagnostic or testing for men or for, or for women. For active duty service um, members, um, patients without service-connected injuries, evaluation, medications, varicocele are all covered, um, but fertility preservation, IUI, or artificial insemination, IVF are not uh, covered. Um, however, it is possible to do some IUI and IVF at if you're at one of a very small number of military facilities. For patients who do have service-connected injuries, the gen- the benefits are more generous. Evaluations, medications, varicocele are covered. Fertility preservation is not covered, um, and both IUI and IVF are, are covered. Um, for retired members in the VA, um, essentially most treatments are, evalu- are, are covered, except for IVF without service-connected injuries. And for patients who do have service-connected injuries, essentially uh, treatment for any reproductive health um, issue is is covered. Well, how can we make this better? Um, advocacy from an insurance standpoint at the employer level, advocating at the state and federal level, and joining with groups like the Alliance for Fertility Preservation um, can be really helpful to try to advocate for better, better coverage. Um, and when you look at um, IVF treatments, um, changing um, the the structure of, of plans can lead to um, to better better coverage. And looking at the University of Michigan, um, again, this, this situation can can improve. Efforts to expand and improve infertility coverage are underway at the state level in New York, Hawaii, Arizona, Mississippi, Indiana, Missouri, Pennsylvania, as well as fourteen other states. Um, and trying to get the Access to Infertility Treatment and Care Act um, passed. So again, talk to your employer, you know, advocate in your state and support American Neurology Association, uh, as well as American Society of Reproductive Medicine and Resolve's advocacy efforts. So, um, when some of the take-home points Infertility does not discriminate by socioeconomic status, but there are clear disparities in the use of infertility care. Insurance coverage for infertility is one important intervention. And how can you improve disparities in the use of infertility care? So some of the other problems are in barriers, getting a semen analysis done. There are limited hours uh, for reliable CLIA uh, testing um, the time spent pursuing fertility care is is really pretty significant. And developing easily accessible, accurate lists of reproductive urology providers who perform telemedicine can may potentially break down barriers for, for patients. Um, there, there is a new mail-in semen analysis test that is is possible and, and may serve to break down some barriers when locally local options are not not available. For patients who need to preserve fertility, educating oncology and transgender providers about fertility preservation being important, talk to to their patients, make sperm banking process more efficient and work to develop systems in your your home areas to make this more more available. Um, Advocate for lower costs when when possible and improve insurance coverage. And there are mandates in, in some states for covering fertility preservation. From a geographical standpoint, there are, there are significant barriers. Um, it's difficult to train more providers. It's a very long process. Um, reproductive urologists often need to be close to in vitro fertilization centers. Um, and so this this can be tricky. Telemedicine may, again, serve to break down some of these geographical barriers. The financial barriers are quite uh, imposing and insurance coverage is, is something that will be necessary to help break down some of these barriers. From an ed- educational um, standpoint, can there be targeted training about fertility options and reproductive health in communities, particularly in, in low, low resource settings? Um, and along the same lines, um, identifying uh, cultural barriers or religious barriers um, and providing education to, uh, to communities, uh, utilizing interpreters for telemedicine. So. Thank you very much again for giving me the opportunity to speak at this this uh, COVID lecture series tonight, um, and I am I'm happy to, to take questions um, at uh, by email, and and through the organizers of the uh, COVID lecture series. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Learn more by visiting our website urologycovid.ucsf.edu.